So today, our scripture is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Today let's hear the word of the Lord. I have, I have yet to meet a sports fan who likes the feeling of their team losing. A, a true sports fan. You know, you can sort of tell the pretenders from the, the real folks. If, yeah, whatever, they lost, big deal. Now you're not a real fan. I mean, maybe, maybe if you have no chance of making the playoffs and, and you're in line for the number one draft pick, you might stomach a loss, but, but it never feels good to lose, at least in my book, uh, whether you're playing the game or watching the game. And, and I think that same principle holds true in, in other areas of life, you know? Who, who wants their candidate to lose an election or their company to lose a contract or, or their kids to lose a scholarship? I think the more we, we personally identify with another person or, or a cause, the more discouraged we feel when that person or cause is beset with trouble. And I've noticed that as, as Christians, we can feel exactly the same way about the cause of Christ in the world today. Let me explain what I mean by that. You watch the news, or you scroll through social media, or turn on the radio, and before too long, quickly despair, frankly. Lord, it feels like you're losing ground here on planet Earth. Holiness is outmoded, your people are derided, wickedness is celebrated, justice is denied. Maybe the Maybe it's not just a news thing, though. It's, it's even more personal. The, the kids that you raised to fear God seem to want nothing to do with them. 
Where's your cause on that, Lord? Or, or a Christian leader you deeply respected is caught in scandalous sin. That happens too. And you, you put all that together and, and it can feel all kinds of different points in our life as believers that, that the trajectory of God and, and his cause is anything but onward and upward. You know the feeling? Not a genius, but this doesn't look like onward and upward. And friends, the church in Ephesus could relate to that feeling. Because when they received this letter from the Apostle Paul, their founding pastor, Paul, was imprisoned in Rome for a crime he did not commit. He couldn't travel to visit or, or strengthen the churches he planted. And there was a good chance that Paul, who, if you're not familiar with him, authored majority of the New Testament, was about to be murdered by the Emperor Nero. So, so you can just imagine the sense of discouragement that the Ephesians would have been feeling. And, and all the more so because they lived in a city that, that was renowned for pagan idolatry and the practice of the black arts. And so one of the primary reasons Paul wrote, not just Ephesians as a whole, but, but this section in particular, if you look at verse 13, was to help them not lose heart over what he was suffering. And so to do that, to help them not lose heart in the face of all those troubles around them and within them, he takes them back to the basics in these verses. Very deliberately and carefully, he's a good pastor, he turns their gaze away from what the world is doing and back onto the bigger story God is writing in the universe. That's what he does here. And I think we need the same medicine, friends. In our own day and age, we, we need to fix our eyes on what God is doing in the world and our role in his glorious mission. Because make no mistake, God is doing something magnificent right now. Even in the darkness. And here's what I want you to know this morning, remember today. What God's doing, even in the darkness right now, has everything to do with the local church. There's something magnificent going on in the world right now. And it's not featured on the news. And it takes place in darkness. And it has everything to do with the church. And I'm not talking about the church, in case that's a newer word for you, in a strictly a universal sense, okay? A, a, the spiritual body of all believers in all places at all times. I, I'm talking about the local church. Okay, what do I mean by that? An identifiable assembly of Christians who have covenanted together to uphold the right preaching of God's word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right practice of church discipline for God's glory and their good talking about the body of believers in Ephesus, okay, in, in AD 62, when they got this letter. I'm also talking about us, Kingsway. 
And so if you're a member of our church, I, I, I want you to just pause for a moment and look around the room. Okay? Don't be weird about it. <laughs> but look around the room. We can't see all of our faces. It's mask things. I, side note, I fear that some of you that I've only ever known and met with a mask on one day when we're singing together and we don't have them on anymore. May it happen, Lord Jesus. I'll look at you and think, are you new here? I've never met you. <laughs> but of the faces you can see, think about this, okay? This room is full of people who are like you and unlike you. Different stories, different languages, different jobs, different experiences. And, and when you look at all that, you look around a room like this, be honest, what do you see, friend? Do, do you see something that is eminently ordinary? Or do you see the most vivid display of God's glory on planet Earth? Because no matter how dark the hour or fierce the opposition, God will not fail to glorify his name through the countercultural institution of the organized local church. Period. The church, here's the point of this whole passage and really the sermon this morning. The church is the centerpiece of God's mission strategy on planet Earth. It's the centerpiece. And Paul gives us two big reasons in this passage that we know that's true. Let's look at those together. First, point number one. We know the church is the centerpiece of God's mission strategy, even in the darkness, because God reveals the mystery of the gospel to form a people. Verses one to seven. So let's follow what he's doing here, because like typical Paul, He's on the move, even in his writing, all right? So in verse two, Paul breaks off the prayer that he began in verse one to recount for the Ephesians a, a stewardship that God has entrusted to him. What's, what's a stewardship? Well, it's, it's a responsibility, an obligation, a charge, to care for something or someone on another person's behalf. And in Paul's case, God, God had entrusted him, his stewardship, was a message of grace, which is simply a word that refers to God's unmerited favor. It, it was Paul's job to, to receive that message, to guard that message, and to declare that message for the good of men and women like us in the city of Ephesus. And notice Paul doesn't immediately cut to the chase and just spit out what the message is. He's kind of like a pilot, just, just orbiting the runway. He mentions the message, refers to the mystery, but he doesn't tell us exactly what it is yet. And he does that to, to lay some groundwork for why the message is worthy of our trust in the first place. What does he say? It's a mystery, look at verse 3 made known to Paul by revelation. What's that mean? He didn't invent this message. He didn't create this message. It wasn't a product of his own mind or imagination. 
or some bad Chinese he ate the night before. It, it was something God gave to him or revealed to him. And until recently, he says, at the time of writing this, it, it had been a mystery. Not, not because before it didn't make sense or was impossible to understand, but in the sense that the, the full content and implications of the message had not yet been, up until this point, fully understood. As Paul says in verse 5, it was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. It's a message God revealed in Paul's day, inspiring first century apostles and prophets to speak and write on the Lord's behalf through the power of the Spirit. And apparently it's also something, verses 3 and 4, that Paul told the Ephesians about before. A matter of which he had written briefly, whether in a prior communication or, or I think more likely in the earlier chapters of the same letter. He doesn't ask them, notice, to believe the message with blind faith or to just take his word for it. He encourages them, look at verse 4, to what? To read this. To study it. To experience its, its self-authenticating character that they might what? Perceive or see or realize for themselves that Paul's words are God's words. And we know this message has something to do with Jesus because he calls it, look at the end of verse 4, the mystery of Christ. Christ is the, the content of the me message, the center of the message. But it's not until verse six that Paul actually comes right out and says, what is this message? <laughs> verse six, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Praise God indeed. <laughs> and you need to know that in almost all of the first century Jewish synagogue context in which Paul taught and preached, those words were fighting words. Those were fighting words. So we're going to read it again. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let me explain why those were fighting words. Throughout the, the entire Old Testament, and the thousands of years over which it was written, the, the ethnic nation state of Israel enjoyed pride of place, okay, as the chosen people of God. It wasn't that God didn't relate to other people groups, okay? He, he delivered messages to all, all manner of other nations through his prophets. He even promised to Abraham, the grandfather of the Jewish patriarch Jacob, that, that his off, in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and yet the Jews alone, the ethnic nation state of Israel, possess the gift of covenant relationship with Yahweh. Only they had that. 
God gave them the gift of his word, the law. God, God gave them the gift of his, his presence, the temple in Jerusalem. If you wanted to know God back then, if you wanted to experience his saving power in your life, the message to the Gentiles, non-Jews, was very simple. What do you have to do? You've got to come and see. Because God's on the move over here. He's revealing himself over here among us. But even the Gentiles who came and saw, so to speak, their spiritual privileges were severely limited. There were still two courts in the temple in Jesus' day. An, an outer court for the Gentiles and an, an inner court for the Jews. And that reminds us that the, the ethnic distinctions in God's redemptive work prior to Christ were real, friends. They were real. We kind of bucket that with our idolatry of equality. And that ethnic distinction that God himself made became a wall of hostility on account of the pride of men. And it was the very wall, praise be to God, that he brought crashing down through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Crashing down. And so on this side of the cross, relationship with God is no longer the, the reward of being a Jew, of adherence to the law of Moses. It's available to every man and woman on planet earth through faith in Jesus. And what, what's that tell us? Okay, because that's what the Bible means by the gospel, right? That's another Christian word that just gets thrown around. What, what, what's the gospel? Well, the gospel says that all of us have broken God's law. Jew and Gentile alike. We, we, we deserve nothing but judgment on account of our sin. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus bore the guilt of our sin in our place. He died so that all who trust in him as their savior wouldn't have to die. And now through faith in Jesus, faith alone, Jew and Gentile, in black and white, and rich and poor and and young and old, and those who speak English, y los que hablan español, are reconciled to God. And in being reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. That's the gospel. It is the good news of reconciliation in two directions. Vertically with God, from whom we have been estranged on account of our sin and horizontally with one another from whom we have been divided and distanced on account of the same sin. As Paul rejoiced in Ephesians 2 verse 15, God has created in Christ, what? One new man in place of the two, so making peace. And now, look back over chapter three, Back to verse six, we are, because honestly, most of you look like Gentiles. <laughs> we are fellow heirs. What's that? Mutual recipients of the blessings of salvation as adopted sons and daughters of God. 
And we're what? We're members of the same body. Christian, what's that? We're we're spiritually connected to one another through our union with Christ. And we're what? Partakers of the promise. What's that? We're, We're sharing alike in the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is God's down payment on the spiritual inheritance waiting for every Christian in heaven. And the implications of all that, okay, for the work of Christian missions are massive. So let me point out two of them, all right? First, that says God's work in the world today isn't limited to a single nation. What's God doing? He's he's drawing men and women to himself from every tribe and tongue, which is why we should be earnestly committed to seeing the gospel advance among every tribe and tongue. Because as long as there's a place on planet earth, friends, where where Christ Jesus has yet to be named, we have work to do. (laughs) And when we urge a man in Bolivia or a woman in Thailand to, to bow their knee to King Jesus, listen, we are not adopting an attitude of cultural superiority or promoting a sinister species of white colonialism. We are contending for the redemptive mission of God. That's what we're doing. Which, by the way, is why we're passionately committed to being a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church here in Midlothian. It's not just because that's, get your cultural props. It's because it's the plan of God himself. Here's the second implication. God's work in the world today does not consist, please hear this, of drawing men and women to himself as isolated individuals. (laughs) This is a whole nother sermon. Through the power of the gospel, what God is forging is called a people for his own possession. The saving purposes of God, think of it this way. They're fundamentally corporate That there's nothing individual about fellow heirs. Notice that. Members of the same body or or partakers of the promise. So here's the implication for missions, okay? We need to think less in terms of whether someone has a personal relationship with Jesus and more about whether they have been added to the visible body of Christ. And yes, I'm ruffling some feathers with that. But that's what Paul's saying here. We we need to stop divorcing faith in Jesus from membership in the local church as if it were even possible to be united to the head, to Christ, without also being united to the body, the church. And if all our busy missions efforts are winning professing converts, but not resulting in faithful church members Something is terribly wrong. Why? Because God, look at verse nine, verse six, well, verse six, stay there. Because God has revealed the mystery of the gospel to form a people, friends. A people, a body. That's the first reason the church is the centerpiece of God's mission strategy, okay? God God has revealed the mystery of the gospel not just to kind of connect you and Jesus, 
Have fun. No, it's bigger than that. It's this. It's to form a people. Here's the second reason why the church is the centerpiece of God's mission strategy. Point two, God declares the glory of the gospel through his people. Okay, what was point one? God reveals the mystery of the gospel to form a people. That's true, verses one to seven. And, verses eight to 13, God declares the glory of the gospel through his people. So at the the transition point, verses seven to eight, Paul's marveling. I mean, he's just in awe. And let's follow him here, okay? At the kindness of God in taking a man who was hell-bent on destroying God's people and making him a man who was devoted to building up God's people. It's like, how did that happen? It was grace. Paul never got over the mercy of God. Nor should you, friend, if you're a Christian, would, would you, be honest, would you take your worst human enemy? Yeah, think about a name, okay? <laughs> would you take that person and adopt them as your very own child and enlist them in your family business? I think not. That's precisely what God has done in the gospel. You might not be a minister in the sense of being called to a pastoral office like Paul, but hear me. If you're a Christian, if you've been following Jesus for two minutes, all right, God has commissioned you as an ambassador of Christ. Because missions, the work of of urging people to follow Jesus, especially among people groups where he's not been named, missions isn't a special Christian thing, right? It's an every Christian thing. To, to, To be a disciple, think of it this way, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is what? To make disciples, to make followers of Jesus Christ and to be animated in that labor by the same power that animated and equipped Paul. I I love that phrase, verse seven, the ministry that was given and by grace, by the working of God's power. What's that mean, friend, for missions? Well, it means the next time you feel weak and scared and incapable, whether your present mission field is Bolivia or your own backyard, know this, the power of God is still working in you. Okay, it's equipping you. And and enabling you and and empowering you to speak of Jesus. Speaking of Jesus is not a dreadful duty. It's an incredible privilege. Because it's a gift of the spirit. And the degree to which we see ourselves the way Paul did. as, As undeserved recipients of God's grace. Is the degree to which we will be glad ambassadors of God's grace. You can't separate those two. And as a minister of the gospel, God charged Paul to do two things. Let's look at them, which are really two sides of the same coin. The first is found in verse eight. Look there. To what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I have been thinking about that most of this week. Because you know what that means? That means, friend, 
we will never run out of things to say about Jesus. You realize that? His, his greatness, as Psalm 145 says, is unsearchable. You, you'll never read or meditate on the glory of his person and work in the word and eventually realize, well, I guess that's the end of that. <laughs> What's next? No. Now, were, were the Lord to give you a thousand years, friend, you would never exhaust the glories of Christ. Never, ever. So what's the implication for missions? Don't wait until you feel like you've understood or grasped all there is to know about Jesus before you open your mouth and speak of him. <laughs> because we're never gonna arrive at that point. Even in heaven, there will always be more. More majesty, more beauty, more, more splendor, more goodness. Our job is simply to be faithful with the measure of understanding we've already received. That's what God's called us to. And Paul describes his second responsibility in verse nine. It's kind of the other side of the same coin. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Did you realize, Christian, that, that this gospel of which God's made you an ambassador, with which we've been entrusted, the gospel is not God's plan B, okay? It, it's not like God created the world and then witnessed Adam and Eve's sin and said, oh boy, what are we gonna do now? accessing my infinite God archive. I have a solution because I always have a solution. No, okay? No, from eternity past, before God even made the world, almighty God resolved to redeem men and women as a people for himself from every nation on earth to the praise of his glory. And so what's the implication of that for missions? When you're suffering on the path of faithfulness to God's mission, there's something you need to remember, okay? You need to remember that, that behind it all and beneath it all and in front of it all stands what? The sovereign immovable plan of almighty God. That's what's standing on the stage. And so don't, don't speak of Jesus with timidity, friend. You know, focusing or, or talking like, well, this is what I think, or, you know, this is what I believe, as if the truth of Jesus runs no deeper than your thoughts or your experiences. Praise God it runs deeper than your thoughts and experiences, right? We, we want to sh share our thoughts and experiences, but when you're talking about the gospel, speak with a boldness that comes from knowing you are speaking of the eternal plan of God. That's not your thought or what seems true to you. I don't care what seems true to you. I care what God says is true. So should you. And that's what your friends need to hear. That's what your kids need to hear. Now, may there be none of this false humility that, well, to me, oh, that denigrates the honor of God, friends. When you're at college and you're, you're defending your faith in the classroom, don't, don't play the, well, you know, my perspective is. 
Be humble. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) But speak with boldness. Speak with courage. Because you are declaring the eternal plan of the creator of the universe. The gospel is not a religious theory. It's a divine reality. And the greatest true story in the cosmos. But here's what I want to ask as we prepare to land this plane. What kept the Apostle Paul faithful in preaching that gospel and and illuminating the gospel, even in suffering? Remember where we started. What what kept him going? What, What will keep us going? Well, it's the very same thing Paul knew would keep the Ephesians going and would help them to not lose heart. Look at verse 10. Because in verse 10, Paul reveals the ultimate aim of all his preaching and all, and all his labor for the cause of Christ, implicitly inviting us to join him in embracing the same. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Question for you. If you could choose right now one place for everybody in your life, the world around you, to look to see the majesty of God, what would you pick? What would you pick? Would, would, you, would you go with the stars in the heavens? Or maybe all you life science majors out there, the, the intricacies of the human body, or, or maybe a piece of music that moves your soul, or a painting that's just stunningly beautiful. I mean, there's a measure of truth in all that, right? It, the heavens declare the glory of God. So does every image bearer. And everything we create through our handiwork as God creates. But you know, friends, none of, none of those things are the high point. When God wanted to show the world the full spectrum of his perfections, the utter magnificence of his wisdom, He did not say, look at the stars. He said, look at my church. Look at my bride. To which I say, say what? Say what? Because the last time I checked, we're riddled with conflict. Our our leaders make the front page and not for good reason. We hurt, we offend, we sin against one another, we make mistakes, we form cliques, we practice prejudice, we forget the gospel, we take resources that are supposed to be used for storing up treasures in heaven and we use them to build palaces and monuments to our glory on the earth. We sing, it's all about you. And then we live like it's all about us. 
how is that organization, that assembly of the saints, the fireworks finale (laughs) for the glory of God? That's a good question. I'll let Paul answer. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27. Praise be to God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, we are not God's chosen display of his glory on earth because we are strong or wise, but because we are foolish and weak. Put that on your, so come to my church bumper sticker. (laughs) Welcome to Kingsway. We're foolish and weak. (laughs) I'd be horrible in marketing. (laughs) Why do I say that? Because because it's through our weakness and our frailty and our our hypocrisy and on our our ineptitude. that our Redeemer King shows the world just how strong and kind he really is. You know? As the Lord reminded Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my power is made perfect in weakness. Why? Because God's jealous for his glory. He's not interested in making much of you because you're not worth making much of. (laughs) He's jealous for his honor. He doesn't want the world to look at the church and think, wow, wow. Look at those amazing people. He he wants the world to look at the church and think, listen, there is no other explanation I can conceive of for the good in their lives apart from the present reality of a God who saves. That's his plan. Which means the organized institution of the church is immeasurably more than a spiritual supply wagon designed to keep Christians trudging along toward heaven. We're not, Kingsway. We're a climactic, blood-bought display to every spiritual power in the universe of the supremacy of the glory of God. That is not an overstatement. And that, in closing, has some serious implications. (laughs) Not just for our attitude toward the church as members, but, but our goals and methods in the work of missions. Okay? If our, our missions activities, whether we are distributing Bibles or in another continent teaching sustainable farming or a thousand other things, okay? If our missions activities or what we call missions activities, neither proceed out of the local church 
or result in the planting and building of a local church, then hear this. We have exchanged God's mission strategy for something of our own making. Because the church has been the centerpiece of God's mission strategy. It it remains the centerpiece of God's mission strategy. It will always be the centerpiece of his mission strategy till the day Christ Jesus returns to perfect his spotless bride. That's what you're a part of, Christian, if you're a member of this church. In other words, God isn't glorified simply because we're busy in the work of missions. We have to ask, are we busy with the right things? Is is his strategy our strategy? And and that's why, hear this, we, we are committed at Kingsway to prioritizing missions efforts that are designed to plant and build local churches. It's one of our distinctive values as a denomination. Biblical missions proceeds out of one church with the goal of forming another church because it's through what? The church that God is manifesting his manifold wisdom. He declares his glory through the way we we live the gospel as a church and through the way we speak the gospel as a church. Because it's through our words and our deeds and our, our relationships that God gives the world a foretaste of heaven. You realize you're, Kingsway, we're an embassy of heaven on earth and all our messiness. The pattern and means by which God brings his redemptive work to fulfillment and a living, breathing testimony to the triumphant power of God. So, with the Ephesians, do not lose heart, Kingsway. Don't watch the news and lose heart. Don't feel the pain of conflict with a fellow church member and lose heart. Don't watch a global pandemic seem to halt what our missionary partners are able to do, where a trial in their family seem to halt what a missionary partner is able to do. Don't see that and lose heart. Why not? Because even when we suffer and even when our reputation in the eyes of men takes a hit, And even when we look weak and look foolish because we are weak and we are foolish, this we know King's way. We are the centerpiece of God's mission strategy on planet earth. And that's not a truth that touts our greatness, obviously. (laughs) But it is a truth that should guard you and make you very careful how you speak of God's bride. How you relate to one another. And how we serve each other. And whether we're faithful to share the gospel with the people around us. We rest in knowing the bride of Christ will not fail to magnify the glory of Christ. And because of that, we devote our life, Christian, to serving and supporting and planting and building the magnificence that is the local church. Let's pray.
Father, I ask as we sing this song about the privilege we have of being made your people, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and a quiet awe and a, and a deep thanksgiving that by revealing the mystery of the gospel, you, you are making a people. And through your people, weak as we are, you are then declaring that gospel to the world. I pray that the organized church would be increasingly precious to us in an age where institutions of every sort are increasingly denigrated and criticized. I ask for that, Lord, not because we think we're perfect. The whole point is we're not. I ask for that, that as a body, Kingsway, this embassy, Lord, as long as we have breath in our lungs, would remain a faithful, faithful witness. That's what we want, God. We simply want to be faithful. And I pray for a renewed assurance in the souls of my friends here that a life devoted to building and strengthening the local church is never a life wasted. We pray in your name. Amen.